We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. listening to Now That's What I Call Science, the local Tasmanian science weekly radio show that also goes out as a podcast now, but everything we record is done at Edge Radio, so shout out to Edge for getting us started and supporting us on our way. This week we are talking about gaming, and we are talking specifically about gaming for health, and I'm very privileged to have a wonderful guest who I think is going to really bring this topic to life with me, Jenny Klaus. Hey Jenny. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm good. I, I just want to disclose that I am not a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You don't need to be a scientist. The reason why I think you are going to be the soul of this week's show is because you really, really enjoy the scientific concepts and design, psychology behind things, but also you're a gamer. Yes, that's true. So I think that actually talking, because I'm not a gamer at all, like I occasionally play some games on my phone, but I'm not really like I've ever been, except for Dance Dance Revolution, I've never really been committed <laughs> to a proper game in my life. Um, but what I thought was interesting is that the World Health Organization in September last year added gaming disorder or gaming addiction to the international classification of diseases and essentially it's just like any other addiction if you're gaming to the extent that it's encroaching on your relationships or your life or your day-to-day tasks then you're an addict and there's health clinics all over the world now that you can send somebody who's a gaming addict and it essentially rehabilitates them and shows people how to socialize without gaming and headsets Um, (laughs) and I kind of feel that gaming has a bad reputation anyway so then having this classification is just like i just pictured a whole lot of nervous mothers and 30 year old men and them being like oh no honey you're gonna get gaming addiction and i was like (laughs) oh gaming has some good things too i can tell how young you are when you say 30 year old men because i would say that is the bulk of gamers yeah (laughs) (laughs) no i reckon it is but i kind of think of you know that stereotypical and this is i think what media has pushed towards us like a stereotypical yeah, introverted male sitting at home in his thirties, living with his parents, right? Yeah. Headset, and like that's all that's what they do, and I think that this is just a complete stereotype that has just been fed to us essentially, and I don't think it's real. No, it isn't, and I think a lot of uh, at least what I've read, and this is totally anecdotal, is that it's like teenagers and young children and um, people who maybe not necessarily have developed great social skills or feel more comfortable for whatever reason they might suffer from anxiety or something like this and they just feel more comfortable in a virtual world rather than you know the the real world and it's it just happens and you can see why it is addictive um game gaming companies work very hard to make games addictive because it means you spend more money especially with microtransactions and things like that yeah definitely so we're gonna get into some of the psychology and behind game design and why we enjoy games so much that's going to be our first kind of real nitty-gritty talking piece and then we're going to get into how some of these principles that are usually used to manipulate us in such a way that makes us want to buy certain things within a game to potentially can we use them to get people to engage with behaviors that are more healthy or to get them to lose behaviors that are not healthy but then I also really wanted to kind of spend this show 
talking about how like you can't just force gaming to be for health like they would take a really big design overhaul and you can't really just like hack something to be for gaming that that's just really really difficult because it's not its primary purpose and to make it its primary purpose could be really really beneficial but it would take a really large amount of investment whereas which is where gamification comes in marketing companies love this word gamification um it's adding the elements of addictive game design to other things to you know make people reuse it over and over and over again yeah and i think that's really interesting because if you think of some of the really like if you think of a large gaming franchise or enterprise like what long-standing games do you think of like uh, world of warcraft mm -hmm. that's just a Huge, hugely addictive and um, has like it's its own universe like yeah it's huge you can basically like spend your entire social life inside world of warcraft if you wanted to there's even a joke about it on how i met your mother where two of the characters meet through world of warcraft oh, i didn't pick up on that but <laughs> and i love how i met your mother <laughs> yeah that's so funny um what's another really big one there's the assassin's creed mm -hmm. that's and that's quite different in its style because world of warcraft is a computer game yeah like you PC play it on game. your pc yeah. yeah and then so you've got Let's break down some of the different types of gaming as part of our <laughs> intro. So you've got a PC game, that, and that's usually done uh, online? Uh, not always. Um, so it's just a game on your computer. PC games are essentially you play it on your home computer, either online or off. Xbox is Microsoft's gaming console, and uh, that's one of their sort of... It, you can play them on PC, especially with the new Game Pass they just announced, but... Uh, it is primarily made to sell Xbox consoles. <laughs> yeah, so they sell a, a bit of hardware, essentially, yes. that you can um, use to run your discs that have the software on it for your game. Correct. So they've got, like, one, the big bulk purchase of the actual hardware for mm -hmm. the game, and then they've got, like, this ongoing kind of consumer relationship of the games. Yes. And a lot of these games, like, uh, oh, Grand Theft Auto, mm -hmm. like, they... I don't, how does Grand Theft Auto still sell? Like, how is it so different from the last Grand Theft Auto that, like, it's such a big deal? Well, each one has its own personalities and storyline and quirky main characters. And, um, like, my personal favorite of the franchise is San Andreas because I just really like the storyline. I like the main character and I enjoy playing that game. Whereas other people, you know, they might say a different version is yeah. their favorite. But, the thing about it is it you can't take it too seriously and it's just a lot of fun like a lot of people don't live a life of crime and steal cars <laughs> from people so you can do that in a video game with no consequences and it's a little bit fun gaming used to be this niche thing where nerds who had pcs would sit in their basements and play <laughs> i know that's cliche but it, it was kind of true like um not a lot of my friends were gamers um, consoles like Nintendo, um, which of course now you have the Nintendo Switch, which is a handheld and a dockable at home console. Um, so those types of things came out and suddenly it was like, went a bit more mainstream and then a bit more. So really with the Xbox and PlayStation generations, uh, so PlayStation is Sony's um, console that you play video games on, uh, it definitely changed gaming and made it way more mainstream and mobile games again added that other level of gaming and you know people that play Candy Crush on a daily basis you're a gamer because you're playing a game every day and it's part of your it's part of your life yeah 
I also, so the Nintendo 64 was like <laughs> the first, wasn't that like the first handheld one? I've got the right, no, no, like, no, 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 it's the Game Boy. The, yeah, the, the Game Boy. Game Boy, yeah. yeah. See, this is why you're here. <laughs> you're the expert. <laughs> I wouldn't say expert, but yeah, there were, there were other sort of weird Japanese handheld consoles that kind of were before that. But before the Game Boy, there was no real mainstream handheld console that had popular game titles on it. And Sega followed not long after with their handheld. And um, so, that yeah, they they just have gone gangbusters since then. And some game companies, um, game developers, have given up on trying to make um, games for these handheld devices because of mobiles. So it's a lot Everybody easier. has a handheld gaming exactly. device now. Exactly. <laughs> Everybody has a smartphone. Well, practically everyone. And it's just like, why bother? But Switch remains, Nintendo remains to have the most popular handheld console. I don't know what a Switch looks like. So it's it kind of looks like a little mini tablet with two uh, controllers stuck on either side. Oh, yeah. I loved my PS1. It yeah. was like the best gift ever. I used to play Street Fighter on there. <laughs> I was addicted to Dance Dance Revolution. And it was heaps of fun. And as a youngest child, like I'm four years younger than my nearest sibling, it really kept me entertained for hours. And mm. it wasn't like like I was just vegetating away in front of it. So I do think gaming has really migrated beyond what it was, particularly in the 80s or the 70s. Oh, yeah, it definitely has. And, and it's really changed now in terms of gamers and gaming being like the boys were the one who had the consoles because now it really is a family kind of exercise because a lot of people now, you know, my age who are having kids or whatever, they are playing these games with their kids. And, you know, male, female, non-binary, doesn't matter. Like, they just like games. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a really great way to kind of, like, get some conversation going, get people in- engaged. I definitely find, I, th- I think that that's the beauty about a console game, just that they're very much so inclusive. Like, you think of the Nintendo Wii and things like that. Whereas PC gaming, you don't do that as a group. Oh. Unless it's online. Or do you like... Okay, so let me tell you something about a little thing called a LAN. So LAN means local area network. And when I was uh, sort of going to uni and stuff, I lived in a share house. And we had a LAN set up of all these PCs and would play these PC games. But you are absolutely right. Like, this type of all gaming in the same room or same house or whatever, it's kind of... It doesn't really exist so much in the West. It's more popular in Asia. There's a lot of gaming cafes and things like that. Mm -hmm. So people will still go and play socially. But now, yeah, it's primarily online. Yeah, that's hectic. Uh, it's funny, I really do think it's really sociable. Even when I first moved to Hobart, and I used to work at one of the colleges, and me and one of the girls there would be once a week, meet up and play Mario Kart and drink tea <laughs> and just, like, chat. And it was, like, so much fun. It's one of my fondest memories of there. And it's just, like, you don't think of that as, like, I hadn't thought of that as us being gamers, but we were two women playing video games and absolutely loving it and being really, really competitive. So yeah. you're absolutely right. It just completely transcends the stereotype now. It, it absolutely does and has for a long time. You have a lot of women also working in game development and not just as developers, but at the highest levels, um, you know, art directors and CEOs and things like that. So it's a, it's a really different world. And the gaming industry is also becoming way more inclusive. Xbox last year released their first um, accessible controller system. So for people with disabilities, um, physical disabilities. So, and that has made a huge difference. There are these beautiful videos online, you know, of parents crying because their kids can Aww. finally play the games because of the 
the controller and xbox also made the controller you can use it with other like with with the pc and things like that so it is you know it's getting more and more inclusive of of everything from every different type of person people from different backgrounds ethnicities races uh you know all different types of genders it's really cool i think that that's a really good point for us to say so yeah not all the stereotypes of truth um, and yes, while game addiction may occur, there will be a really small minority of people that are gaming. And you know, oh, how yeah. many people do things and don't become addicted to it? But there is always a proportion that does. Mm-hmm. And with different activities, it's going to vary. And hopefully people will enjoy the different slant we're going to put on things as we try and explain some of the psychology behind how gaming is designed and developed. And then also how we're using these for health in just a moment. We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. So, Jenny, we are talking about gaming and gaming for health. Do you know much about, like, the principles behind how games are developed and designed? Um... Well, I do and don't. I'm not hugely into that side of things. It depends on what you mean. So I was really interested. There's lots of different types of games. So you'll have something like Candy Crush, which actually I think is a collector's game, but also has this kind of, it's just a repetitive, it's like bubble popper and that kind of thing. It's a repetitive, really nice motion to continually do over and over again. Really bright, beautiful colors. It's quite engaging. Mm-hmm. But then you'll also have like a game that you can play that's quite a storytelling game that's maybe over like three or four weeks, months, years, hundreds longer. of hours you yeah. can play sometimes. Yeah, the one one game that I was told about that's a collector's game was at Cookie. Okay. Where I heard of that one. You essentially have to make the cookie. And once you make six cookies, then you can get a cookie oven or something. And then once you make 100 cookies, you can get a grandma helping you making cookies. And then eventually the goal is just keep making cookies until there's like billions and the whole universe is cookies. There's a lot of people that love those games. And I kind of hate them because it um, it feels like I'm working for free. Yeah. So I don't (laughs) like those games. (laughs) That's funny. It feels like I'm working for free. And then you've got, um, there's just heaps. And then you've got the the ones where you're trying to build stuff. What so the city builders, yeah. world builders, um, you've got stuff like the Sims and the roller coaster one and yeah. 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 And then strategy games, which yeah, yeah they're quite different, but typically... real time strategies are tough. Yeah. If you're into war strategy, that's pretty much what they are. Yeah. Like battle strategy. They're pretty intense. But typically behind each of these games is a lot of psychology and a lot of design, either for motion or the colors and the way it's engaging you to keep you coming back and to make it appealing. So it depends on the goal of the developer and their parent company. So if the goal is to just continually make money perpetually through this game for all eternity, then, you know, they're going to want, they're going to want you to keep playing. If it's to get data on how players play a game, it's the same kind of thing. They're going to want to know when you're playing, who you are, your demographics, like, all these kind of things that helps them make a game that's going to sell better next time. So if they want to make money through microtransactions, they'll do it that way. If they want to make uh, money by selling the sequels of the games and they want to make the next game 
better than the first. Um, they do things like release beta versions, so they're not quite ready. They're not fully cooked games, and they basically let the testers fix everything yeah. before it goes to market. Find the bugs, tell me what was good about it, tell me what you hated. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's just like they do with movies, so they have test audiences, and they might even go back and edit a film to, wow. to suit some of the biggest criticisms. So, yeah, I mean, there is a lot of psychology behind it. Like I said, I'm not privy to how exactly that works, but I did do a marketing degree, and in marketing, basically psychology is a huge part of it. It's why I don't work for um, private corporations anymore. <laughs> um, kind of freaked me out. Uh, they do a lot to make sure that they are manipulating you without your, your knowledge. I would say, though, in gaming, the general consensus is the people who are making the games especially, they just really want to make a fun, awesome game. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's just the corporation above that that just wants to make money. Exactly. And it's like a symbiotic relationship. So to make the people happy so they can keep making games, the corporation, the, the developers have to do a few things to make them happy enough so that they can keep making the games. And Yeah, it's so a vicious so cycle. On. Yeah. So what I thought was interesting is that I don't know the psychology behind or like the corporate plan behind like longevity games like Grand Theft Auto or um, the console games. I'm not really talking about them today. I'm more so talking about mobile device games. Yes. Because I don't know really how they would have made much money because they just get to sell the game once. So, but they're really successful and I think they're the model we need to tap into for health. If, if we're really going to make it sustainable and achievable in, a, mm. in an interesting way. But the the part that I was um, referring to was more so there's, there's various different types of games, but they all kind of rely on the same principles. And most of them are on um, the principles of change model or the vendor's self-efficacy model or... Um, I would say it's a lot of Pavlov's dog too. What's that? That's um, you teach someone that they get a reward and yeah. it, it makes them have a certain reaction. So it's again, again, another thing you learn when you do a marketing degree is that, you know, it's they use the example of giving a dog a treat. And if the dog gets a treat at the same time every day for doing a certain thing, they're going to keep doing that thing. And so you in mobile games, we have things like daily rewards. Yes. So daily login reward. If you log in and use this game every day, we'll give you free stuff that will help you play the game better or, you know, be stronger. Your character will be stronger or whatever. Yeah. So. Um, and the other one was self-determination theory. But what I liked about them is essentially it's like you start off and you, you're really enthusiastic, but you know nothing. So everything's really, really difficult, but you're quite resilient in that stage. You'll like really roll with the punches and stick with it. So they don't give you that much stuff. Mm-hmm. But then you have ebbs and flows in motivation. And this is actually the exact mirror of what it is for somebody to get motivated for losing weight. Yeah. Or somebody to get motivated for dieting or exercising. And essentially, oh, I'm really, really motivated. And you slump. And you slump in a big, big way. And maybe then they notice that you've slumped. So they start to give you more free things. They make your chances oh. slightly better that you'll open the door with the right number of the most mm-hmm. things that you'll get. Or they'll send you a notification. Hey, we noticed you haven't logged in in three days. Why don't you, if you log in today, we'll give you, you know, X amount of stuff. Yeah, for sure. And what was, um, but also they might do this for making it prettier. So I remember, (laughs) this is a bit of a guilty um, pleasure indulgence kind of moment. But last year I started playing a storyteller game where uh, I was like a trashy teenage, uh, like make-believe person. (laughs) And all of the really nice outfits you had to buy 
But you could you could play the game without having to pay anything, and you got a certain amount of money every day. But like, but then also the really like juicy storylines, like you had to pay to to actually go down that pathway. Yeah. Uh, and it was just a really interesting way to like reflect on it now and say, oh, that's actually how they make money. Mm. Is like that's really intentional, and they make you go so far on the self determination theory or the self efficacy theory that you're invested and you're kind of like, oh, but I want to stick with it enough. And mm. it's this really interesting paradigm between like, oh, give them enough to keep them here. And when they drop off, like support them, come like really it's get like, around it's them. It's like an abusive relationship. <laughs> it seriously is. You realize things, something's not right and you might need to get out of this game. But then they're like, come on, baby. I didn't mean it. I'll be better <laughs> next time. And then, they, and then you start playing the game. You know, it's yeah. just really bad. Yeah, and definitely. And I've been a victim of it as well. There's a game that Blizzard makes called Hearthstone. And I've, I spent hundreds of dollars on that game getting new card packs. And, you know, all of that stuff sits there now. All of my record, my cards, everything. And I just feel like a sucker, you know. I've, I was suckered. I did get a lot of entertainment out of it. And, of course, I would spend $80 in a second on an Xbox game, no problem, if it was something I really wanted. So, I mean, in that way, it's a free game, a free-to-play, and you can earn those cards. But if you buy the card packs, it pushes you up, you know, it get, makes you more competitive. Yeah. So, and that's how, they, that's how they get you. That's how they get you. Sucker punch. <laughs> but I just find it really interesting that it really doesn't matter what game you're playing, but they do have specific kind of targets so like I think one of the most popular ones might be that kind of like Tetris style or the puzzle solving yeah. and typically people I think do those intermittently so like on the bus mm-hmm. or like not many people sit down for like two or three hours and play that game no they wouldn't it's a time passing game exactly but it has really nice like um, sensor, sensory engagement pathways that it taps into um, and that is a design principle but the other ones where you're really going to get some money is when you, when you can make those into um, a journey, like a story map, where there's continuity and you're mm-hmm. con- continually progressing. And it's a lot as well with the city builder ones because people just love to progress. Mm. We love to get more stuff. It's why capitalism works. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of the kind of biggest things. Like, okay, so we need to know how to keep them really high self-efficacy, but we also need to have an undetermined goal that they should just continually work towards, which is, you know... And I would suggest if anyone's interested in this, go go to any big game company and read their annual report. It will give you a lot of insight into what their goals and, and stuff are. Yeah. So we'll leave it there and come back to talk about how some of these theories and this these motivators are being used to help design health interventions. We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. You have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Alrighty, so now we're going to talk about some examples of a Tasmanian researcher who's born and bred from Hobart. Michelle, Dr. Michelle Kalasea is a physiotherapist in Hobart, and she's been interested particularly in how we can use technology or gaming to improve um, elderly care. Oh. Or people for people who are older and maybe live alone or are regional, which is obviously a challenge in Tasmania. And she's got some really interesting projects. So 
let's go to the first clip to hear about Michelle's project that she recently reviewed um, and has written up and then we'll discuss. Um, so it was for people who have had a stroke and you may or may not know that um, one of the most important things is to do thousands and thousands of repetitions to encourage neuroplasticity and recovery. And so one of the problems is one, motivating people to do thousands of repetitions, but um, you know, there are things like pedometers and stuff out there for people um, who are ambulant, but we wanted to have some kind of monitor that would um, record lower level type exercises. And one of the most common ones we give people with stroke is standing up and sitting down. It's nice and functional, improve their leg strength, um, and also um, it can be aerobic as well. So we wanted to also um, provide something for people that were going home, um, they might not be able to access much physiotherapy, and so we wanted to also have them in contact with a therapist. So what we did is we designed a seat centre. Um, so basically it would just um, pick up when someone stood up and sat down and would be able to count it. That was connected by Bluetooth to an iPad with an app on it. Um, on the iPad there would be a counter or a counter game, so in this case it was very simple, it was um, just climbing Mount Wellington as they did more reps and then that was connected via the internet to the therapist in the clinic. So the therapist in the clinic could see how many reps the person was doing, give them encouragement messages um, and also up the number of repetition and goal that the person had to do. So um, I think probably the biggest thing that came out of it was that we were able to deliver therapy to people that um, lived quite a long way away and weren't able to come in, didn't have transport. Um, and two, the people actually felt like they were being watched, but in a good way. They felt connected to the therapist and um, they, you know, they, they felt more like they should be doing their exercises. Um, and, and in for some, it was the only um, physio that they were actually getting. That's it. So what I thought was really interesting about Michelle's um, idea is it's really simple, like getting a sensor into a seat is not very expensive. Um, it also has a lot of capacity to be developed for other physiotherapy movements. You can just put little sensors on people's wrists and ankles and knees and mm. you can look at them doing squats and stuff. But also Michelle was saying that so they achieve a badge once they've done all of their exercises for that day. And they more so get shown like how they're going up Mount Wellington um, as they're achieving it. But what's really interesting is that that can be spread out throughout the day or done in lot like bursts and the physio will get feedback about that. And that's really important because for stroke patients in particular, what they're trying to do is something really boring and repetitive to lay down muscle memory again. So they've forgotten how to do that sit to stand movement really, really clever, uh, really well. So it's kind of encouraging them to do that several hundreds of times during that day rather than just, you know, okay, I'm going to spend 15 minutes now and do my physio activity. <laughs> to get it over and done with. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, how often have you ever gone to a physio and known that you should do your exercises, but you're uh -huh. like, mm, I don't want to. Oh, dislocated shoulder that I still have physio for many years later. And, yeah, I am so bad with making myself do my exercises. Yeah, so I just thought it was an interesting principle for, and there's some areas where like it didn't work as well as it possibly could have, but it's definitely, that was the first beta version of the game and it can be refined, but they saw some positive findings that essentially this could work, um, particularly for regional care, once you've discharged somebody from like maybe the Royal and they've had to go back home after a stroke, um, it would be a good way to keep that relationship going. But what they did find which may be a generational thing, was that the game 
it wasn't really a proper game. It was just kind of incentivizing them to do their activity. Yeah. So they probably need to put in more gaming principles because what was most beneficial was really that constant feedback from their physio. Yeah, and if they were getting constant feedback from the game, then that might re replace that face-to-face that they don't have. Yeah, like how interesting would it be to have it programmed in there that like a little physio icon comes up and says, oh, you're doing really, really well and uh, keep going. We're really good to see you. Did you know that this is helping to lay down muscle memory and it's going to help you recover and help you stay strong for longer? Well, it could be like, I don't know if you've ever seen these pregnancy apps where it is almost like a game. So it's like your fetus is this size right now. And and that means then now their heart's finally developing and, you know, little things like that. Um, so you have you could have those types of things like did you know you've walked the equivalent or you've done enough exercise to equate to this and yeah. you know like little facts that might actually help make them feel proud of their achievement and spur them on a bit more. Yeah, that's a really good idea. So Michelle actually was part of a, um, a design um, idea for a different project u- using a similar principle. So let's hear about that project as well from Michelle. So the idea was that um, people weren't um, being, I guess, there wasn't much environmental enrichment in the ward. It was very plain, um, there was limited therapy because there's just not enough physio. So we wanted to encourage people to come out of their room, whether they were in a wheelchair or whether they were able to walk and actually um, want to go out of their room and do something. So we thought if we projected something like a fish tank that was interactive on the wall, that the fish needed feeding each day, um, the rubbish needed cleaning up out of the sea, that kind of thing, that might encourage people to um, come out of their room and actually be more active without them knowing it was exercise. Um, And also, you know, if they had problems with their arm movement, then there were some simple enough movements that they could do to encourage that arm activity as well. So I love the idea of an interactive fish tank and we just heard from Michelle Calisea where uh, she tried to work with some local developers and the computing degree here at Utah's um, to try and come up with something that could be essentially embedded within to care facilities to encourage people to get out of their rooms, get out of their beds and like just do something a bit more communal. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what I really liked about that because it was a gaming not really it's more of a tech hack I think uh, and she and I kind of went well, is it gaming is it not it could really be uh, developed into having some gaming principles to make sure people really come back I think people have a strong sense of competition so if they had like a nursing home leaderboard <laughs> like I think that would be totally people would be like oh I want to be number one and yeah. they would like be sneaking into the you know, rec room or whatever every day trying to get the most fish taps or whatever it is. Yeah, that's such a good point that, like, you know, Betty can't let, you know, Davis get a top. I don't know why I just used Betty Davis's name as two individual people there, but I do not apologize. Um, Yeah, I just think uh, it's also something that could be really customized. So, you know, you can have it that it's set to do something, like motivate somebody for three to four days, like on a stroke ward where you need to get people out of bed really intensively in that first week so that they um, lay down some of those muscle pathways again or that it's got more longevity and it's got more interesting things built into it and you get more badges over time for something like a nursing home yeah yeah and it could really have a bit more legs to it I think depending on the setting that you're putting it into they have tested something similar in I think it's Finland but it's one of the European countries in aged care facilities of just essentially having like 
and it projects onto a table and it's again a fishing type thing and it's just all about hand-eye coordination and getting people moving and talking Mm -hmm. and like making it really bright and colorful because it's quite engaging yeah when you kind of want that cognitive stimulus that sounds like it it's it's amazing it's really fascinating what's happening in the areas of health and gaming because you know i remember when we first came out and it was in nursing homes and suddenly these people who had just pretty much given up we're having tennis tournaments and bowling nights and you know so right then i think people suddenly realized because no one expected that to happen no one not even nintendo so when it happened all of these other companies you know that make health med- medical technology went well hang on a minute like this could have so many different applications and it's just grown from there and that is the absolute perfect perfect way for us to leave it there and get into what are some of the hang-ups and what do people not see coming with um, gaming for health. We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. So we were just talking about how Nintendo Wii came out and really people didn't see it coming that this would really appeal to a lot of generations Yeah, and have a lot of uses outside of just... I don't, who were they aiming for? Uh, they Mostly kids and families with the Wii, I think. Uh, it was supposed to be something that people could use with their kids and not just kids are on a console in a different room kind of thing. Ah, uh, okay. We and Nintendo... Nintendo primarily makes gaming for families and and young people but with the switch they've kind of moved into the also the other areas of gaming and gamers but yeah the wii u i think definitely that was that was their aim to just provide an entertainment for family yeah and a massive tick it was hugely successful yeah Um, another really interesting one that kind of had unprecedented unprecedented Wow, I was struggling with that word. Um, Effects was Pokemon Go. Yeah, Pokemon Go. Um, I remember reading an article about how how many people lost weight and got healthy playing that game. Yeah, it was crazy. They were just really into it and out walking around as groups. But how many community groups were also set up? Yeah, lots. Like, that's hectic. I see so many from like back home in Ireland of people who like run Pokemon groups. I'm like, I wish, that, I hope that that is something that you can put on your CV because there's like 60 <laughs> people in there and you were coordinating activities every week to go out as a group and walk around looking for Pokemon. Yeah, that's definitely, that's a CV worthy for sure. Yeah, but how, stra- like, how strange that people, like, again, when they set this up, is that partly the nostalgia thing? Like my my childhood growing up like I was obsessed with Pokemon and everybody had the cards and then they launched Pokemon Go and almost all of my friends I never played it but all of my friends were like super into it straight away yeah I played it and I've not even been a huge fan of Pokemon um I I have friends who've played it since the Game Boy days and I um had never really gotten through a whole game of it um again it's one of those games that feels like you're more doing work than playing a game sometimes so it never really 100 percent appealed to me but pokemon go was so fun yeah it was so fun but the only problem is after a while it just became too repetitive they yeah the the game makers failed to put in any new functionality or 
anything to keep people in. So there's one thing to make a game that you want people to play, but keeping them in the game and continuing to play is uh, an achievement very few games have done. Yes, yeah, so we're actually going to hear from Brett Young now, who's a strength and conditioning coach from Brett Young Fitness. But he used to run Stomp Fitness in town, um, in Hobart. And essentially, it was a completely gamified fitness center where you could go and do like, um, uh, what's the IR? Not, not VR? AR. AR. Augmented reality. Yeah, you could go and do that, or you could, like, there would be, like, hacked things everywhere so that you could do it in a gamified way. Mm -hmm. Um, And he really talked about that as a challenge, that games are set up to be really enticing, and then there's really not much else after you've played it for however many hours. At some point, you're most likely going to get bored. Yeah, it's because it takes a lot to make that content. Yeah. You know, and I guess one of the good things about that card game I used to play is that they did release new content and new cards and new functionality on a regular, semi-regular basis. Yeah. So let's go to the clip now from Brett to hear about some of his experiences and why maybe these things aren't translating very well to a real health um, outcomes. So we thought, well, how are we going to get this into centres throughout Australia? We thought about um, leisure centres. Um, pools, places like that. So we set up at the Hobart Aquatic Centre in 2011 in their professional aerobics area. And they have things like les mills, all their normal group activities that people are used to, such as, you know, uh, pump, spin classes and so forth. Then we had our exergaming solution, which was like Dance Dance Revolution for up to 16 people. So we had this really weird, high-tech, gamified step game alongside pump, RPM and all this. So after one year, we were the second most popular group activity. Um, RPM was the most popular, which is just the bikes, because they had 20 bikes. And I used to count the numbers, don't worry. I was there counting the numbers, it was the most popular. So we did really well in a fully commercial centre. So then it sparked, why don't we do it ourselves? So we start our first studio in North Hobart, called Excite, uh, in 2012. It was too small, we moved out of there to go to the city in Victoria Street to an old Gothic theatre. It was purely built on exergaming, just a pure exergaming solution, nothing else offered. I started to get into a bit of personal training again there as well, but it was basically a, a group solution using you know, cutting edge technology in Games for Health. We did it for two years and we thought we can do better than this. We can actually now offer complete fitness gym solution, not just exergaming. Let's incorporate that into a massive gym. So we found a spot right in the middle of Liverpool Street, right in the city. Um, we spent a long time preparing it, getting the right equipment. Uh, we fitted it out amazingly with outdoor landscaping grass indoors. We painted it bright orange. It looked like the sun inside every day uh, with green lushness everywhere. Then we had a kind of open plan separated by big technology screens, like big projection screens. And we had different formats playing. So we had pure exergaming formats along with strength training. Uh, later on, it became powerlifting as well, and a cardio area which was dedicated to exergames which had been hacked. Uh, rollers turned into padlets, boxing bags turned into interactive boxing bags, stationary bikes turned into uh, interactive cruising bikes through different uh, climates and, and places around the world. All sorts of crazy stuff. 
Um, and but we advertised Stomp, it's called Stomp Fitness. We advertised Stomp Fitness as Australia's first gaming gym, or exogaming, or gamified gym. Nobody quite knew what it was. Then we made another mistake, we called it Stomp Fitness, because the main game is a stomp step game. And people thought, well, we're a dance studio. And it, but it took maybe 12 months to figure this out, so we just wondered why it was not working the way we felt it should. So we just changed it to a gym, and we just let people come in and make up their own minds. Then the second problem happened. People walked in. This was the most un-gym-looking-like gym environment they'd ever seen in their life. And you walk people around, and they looked like stunned mullets. They were like this blank look on their face as they watched people do activities they'd never seen done before. They walked back to reception, so we did the full tour. They walked back to reception and just didn't know what to do. There's no sales opportunity there, really, because you could see them remonstrating and trying to digest this world, this environment they'd just seen. They were like, what is this place? They kind of expected to see normal stuff, you know, treadmills, bikes, people sweating a lot, lycra, you know, all the typical prima donnas and all that stuff, and people just strutting around the bro science stuff. And we had none of that. They, they didn't quite know what to do. So those people already into fitness just didn't like it because they didn't feel it was fitnessy enough. And those people that weren't into fitness didn't know what really there was there. What, is this really fitness or is this... We don't know what this is. So our big sort of adventure into we can change the world by getting 85% of people who don't go to gyms to come to this place. It didn't work because we couldn't market it properly. And none of us were marketing experts. We're just passionate about what we were doing. But none of us had the, the, the marketing savvy to twist this around. And we tried. And we got a lot of media coverage, but it wasn't useful. Um, so we, we had to like, unfortunately we had to close it down. I left a bit earlier. Um, and People had to get on their lives because we put our heart and souls into this place. So we, we just had nothing left. Um, but we tried it. So, yeah. So what do you think are some of the biggest challenges for the gaming, the health industry? Because we've seen a lot of games. The Wii Fit. Who yeah. didn't have a Wii Fit for Christmas? Yeah. The first couple of years that they were around. I mean, sure. every household had one. Um, and we just see this really big increased spike. It's the next best thing. So that was Pokemon Go as well. What do you think are some of the challenges for, you know, why haven't they changed the world yet? <laughs> <laughs> I know, Dennis. Why haven't they? Mainly because they're not games for health. So to give you an idea, Nintendo's Wii Fit, Nintendo never, ever, ever publicised that as a health game. Even in their health games. Because of insurance. Okay? It was never publicised. It's just a lot of researchers picked them up and said, let's use this for research as a health game. Because you kind of wobble your arms around a bit and you might duck here and there. So this has got some physical aspects to it. So maybe we could use this as a physical tool, a gateway tool, we used to call it. But Nintendo never recognised that, ever. Uh, Sony moved for a little bit more progressive that way, and they kind of did push that idea, but not so much more. They never said it was Games for Health or an Exagame, ever, ever. Nintendo and Sony never mentioned the word Exagaming or fitness technology or whatever you might want to call it ever. So even though the games had a good potential to create, get people up and have fun physically, they were never created to do that intentionally. Even the ones which were quite physical. 
Um, now we're moving into VR, and we've got exactly the same situation. Uh, even where I, we are here now, we'll be getting an Oculus Quest that's already ordered. But I know full world's not created for gyms. I know full world's not created to be for a lot of sweat. We'll have to have different masks for each person, or different mask, um, the rubbery bits to begin to face, so each person will have their own. So not, even though these solutions are really quite physical, they're not created from the outset to be that way. They're a hack. So there's no one that's actually really set about to solve that problem from the get-go, uh, mainly because they don't know the outcome. Who will buy it? How much money will they make? But if you make a game, it's a good game, you'll probably sell it. If you make an extra game, maybe. So it's a lot of money, you know, tens of millions of dollars to produce these things. So why they haven't done it, maybe just someone isn't willing to do it. Just, there's just not enough people willing to take Okay, so we heard from Brett Young there, which I think just really, it's great to hear somebody else's experience who's been working in this industry for, you know, over 15 years now um, about some of the challenges that they've experienced. And I think that's an important point to make is that gaming for health has been around since about 2001. So it's not really new. There's a, a whole academic journal for gaming and health. Wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole big thing. So I also this week interviewed Dr. Ivan Bindoff, who's a computer developer at Utah's, And he designed a game where it's a city builder to essentially encourage people to quit smoking. So he identified a lot of these gaps that we've talked about that essentially it gets boring after a while mm -hmm. and you need to keep people coming back and you need to provide something that's maybe short and sharp. So rather than trying to get people to lose weight or be active, why don't we try and do something that's really contained like quitting smoking? So we want to keep their, them busy over a sustained amount of time so to distract from cravings. And we also want to give rewards for not engaging with the negative health behavior. So people would say how many cigarettes they'd smoked. And if it was less than the day before, they would get quit coins um, that they could use to build their city, which it all sounds really, really good. And so now we'll go to that clip from Ivan. Looked at um, what was happening in mobile gaming more generally. And all the strategies that games companies are using in mobile gaming to get people to pay money, we thought would be potentially applicable as a way of getting people to do healthy behaviour. Which is, it's a free-to-play game, but you are limited in what you can do if you don't cough up a few dollars. So usually the, the model is they have some ecosystem where you have resources that you need to purchase. Uh, that might be turns, so you get turns to play, or it might be premium currency that allows you to build things quicker or buy things outright rather than waiting. Uh, so it gives you a leg up. Or it might just be cosmetics, so simple things like, you know, clothes and flags and avatars and whatnot that you get access to if you pay money. So uh, we wanted to do a similar thing with a less cynical outcome associated with it. So we, we wanted to set up an environment where people had this thing they were enjoying, they wanted more of it. Uh, to get more of it, they had to tell us how many cigarettes they smoked or read some information about uh, strategies to avoid cravings or whatever it is, things things that would potentially help them quit smoking. But it sort of led us to think, well, there are health-improving behaviours 
that don't require someone to be engaged long term. And smoking was a really obvious one for us, okay? If we can get them through two weeks or a month and they quit during that period of time, hopefully they can stay quit. Like, I mean, staying quit is its own problem, but people who do manage to quit often do stay quit. So they don't need to be part of a quit plan anymore because they've quit. <laughs> so we thought maybe that if we could come up with a game model to help people to quit and engage with the process of quitting, then they would persist with that. So we heard from Ivan there. So do you think that there's any silver bullets for, for gaming and health? Or do you think that it's more so about 